0: Hello, hello! Welcome to Two Crickets in a Thorn Tree, the smoothest glass of amaro for your mind. I almost said the name of a different podcast there because clearly I'm not on top form today. But anyway, uh, I'm half of your host, Nicholas Lorimer, joined as always by the other half of your hosts, Gabriel Krauser. Bom, bada, bom, bom, bom. Well, uh, we are once again going to try and keep this episode shorter than some of the last ones have been, but. Uh, uh, we have tried and failed this before, but hopefully this time we'll get it right. So <laughs> please bear with third, us. Third time lucky. Yeah, third time lucky. Also, it's uh, like a so,
1: long weekend is about to start. So we all have an incentive to take it easy and bug Oh, off. yeah.
0: It's, a, it's about to be Easter for all those celebrating. Um, I hope you have a very good Easter. I'm certainly going to enjoy the long weekend.
1: Uh, wrong. It's about to be Western Easter.
0: Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Now the Orthodox Church calculates it differently. <laughs> true true Easter is a long way away. But I, I, let's just say that uh, there Orthodox... yeah. I'm teasing. I'm teasing. I've got no opinion about <laughs> when real Easter actually is. You know, if you think if you think that like the churches have been split for like a thousand years, right? Um, yes. A relatively few doctrinal differences have popped up over that thousand years, but this is one of the most persistent ones that's become sort of oh, entrenched, yeah. and it's very strange. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you think also, that it would just be easy to to work out a compromise on this one?
1: Can you remember how how does it like the one group calculates it from like moon cycles, and the other one it's something like involves that. Bec- sun
0: cycles? Yeah, it's it's kind of it's it's weird because you know most and there were Christian different holidays, calendars, right? Are, are based on the um. Most Christian stuff is based on the solar calendar, right? But uh, not Easter, because Easter is as a function of the Jewish calendar, which is a lunar calendar, because it's a certain amount of time after Passover. I can't even imagine the exact rule, but it's something to do with like the first full moon after Passover or something like that. Yeah. Uh, and because yeah. Passover, because it's a lunar calendar, moves through the year, that means that Easter is always a little bit... Anyway. <laughs> I know.
1: And and for to go on another wobbly just to expose our, our epistemic humility. I remember having a quiz night once near Easter where uh, the question was why is Easter Sunday 3 days away from Good Friday? And I ended up reading a whole long story about how in ancient <laughs> Jewish calendars the day actually started at sunset. <laughs> and so, Good Friday was like, it is actually what we think of it Friday, but before sunset. So, it's one day later, you know, just after sunset. And then two days later, uh, just after sunset on Saturday. And then three days later, Sunday evening. And then that, uh, 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 it's very, I didn't, I'm, I, I'm, look i can't remember it properly i didn't understand (laughs) it properly at the time like i drew it out and i still wasn't entirely satisfied by the version but it's the kind of thing i mean part of what i find amazing about it is that it's one of those things that um people sort of go through every year and and don't really question or don't figure out like to most people most of the time there's like one easter and there's three days between Friday and Sunday, and uh, yeah, yeah. that's fine. Yeah, and it's and it's always a surprise. It's like, oh no, hold on. That's anyway. Um, we 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 are aiming to to finish recording this podcast before Easter. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's see if we, can we do that. To... <laughs> so so,
0: so uh, uh, updates on the wall or Elon Musk first. I think let's do Elon Musk first. Okay. So Elon has been, I'm sure um, many of our listeners have probably at least sort of somewhere seen some of this. Um is he still the world's richest man? I know he bounced up and down a little bit uh in the in the rankings. He's in the vicinity. Yeah, he's 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 like in the top three for sure. Um anyway, so Elon Musk uh kind of started tweeting some cryptic things about Twitter, and then suddenly he announced that he had bought enough of it to get on the board to become its largest shareholder. 9.2%. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Then it's, like, not entirely clear what happened. He was going to take up his seat on the board, um, and then he suddenly said, oh, actually, I'm not going to. And Twitter released a thing saying, "Ah, oh, you know, we've talked with him, and we think we all think this is for the best." And Elon didn't say specifically what had made him go off Twitter uh, or what had made him, you know, uh, go off being on the board. Uh, but some people were speculating in the comments in reply to him saying Elon went in there to to uh, you know have a frank discussion with, our, with them about free speech, and then they told him that if he's on the board, he has to speak nicely about the company, and he liked that speculation so maybe that's what happened at least maybe that's what he wants everyone to think happened anyway
1: well well the other speculate i mean the the financial papers are saying if you join the board then you can't buy up more than 14 percent of the company right so i don't Uh, i don't think those
0: are those are incompatible so i think he may have wanted to go on the board realized that uh he was quite distant in terms of viewpoint from a lot of the members of the board and then decided to change his strategy. And so by not going on the board, uh, it looks like he's making a play for the whole company. So we don't know where it is at yet, but apparently according to some regulatory filings, he has applied to buy the whole company. um, Yes. Let let me read you
1: out some of the details there. So, I mean, because this would be one of the largest purchases in the history of humankind. um, I think it might be the single largest purchase by an individual. Um, but I very much stand under correction there. So uh, Elon Musk submitted to the board as part of the official filings. This has been released uh, to the chairman. I'm now reading what he wrote. I invested in Twitter as I believe in its potential to be the the platform for free speech around the globe. And I believe free speech is a societal imperative for a functioning democracy. However, since making my investment, I now realize the company will neither thrive nor serve the societal imperative in its current form. Twitter needs to be transformed as a private company. As a result, I'm offering to buy 100% of Twitter for for $54.20 a share in cash, which is 54% more than the day he began investing in Twitter and 38% more than the day that his investment was publicly announced. My offer is my best and final offer, and if it is not accepted, I will. I would not need to reconsider my position. I would need to reconsider my position as a shareholder. Twitter has extraordinary potential. I will unlock it, Elon Musk. So uh, to give a sense of scale, I mean, I think that comes out at like $54 billion, something truly- crazy.
0: Healthy chunk of change.
1: Crazy. And the reason there's such a big difference, it's like it's 50% more than when he first bought it, but only 38, I mean, 38% more- then uh, the day after it was announced is because when it was announced, the f- share price went up by about 20%. But the point is that he's saying he's laying down the challenge and there's a subsequent letter, which makes it more explicit, Where he's saying he, he wants to run this sort of in the way that, um, that Warren Buffett, uh, was thinking when he bought into the Washington post and Warren Buffett's purchases of the Washington uh, purchase of shares in the Washington post was on Catherine Graham's version uh, who was the, the chief, the publisher of the Washington post through the Pentagon papers and Watergate through the, through the heyday of American newspaper uh, um, you know, challenges to, to the powerful, to the corrupt, to the mendacious, uh the, the 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 shiniest hour I think for American news uh was in that period, and part of the idea was that Buffett thought there was the social imperative uh to maintaining a democracy that the kind of investment that a rich person makes when they're investing in a newspaper is partly for return on investment in in financial terms in the long run it'll work out like that, but in the short run that you're happy to make decisions that are going to not be as lucrative as possible. Um, because what they're going to do is have third-party effects, which are going to be so good for the country that it's going to make the country do so well that in 20 years, uh, your asset is going to be much, much better off. And he turned out to be right. So this is the play that Elon Musk is saying. And he's saying to these guys, if you disagree, you need to tell your shareholders that they could have made 40% on their investments in a day, and that that's not worth it. So you need to be explicit about the fact that you hate capitalism, something like that. You hate capitalism and you hate free speech. Right. It's it's
0: quite a, quite a gauntlet to be laid down. Right. <laughs>
1: but why do I think that it might not work? One person, two words, the orange fire. <laughs> right. Because that's, if you if you ask people who don't like Elon Musk, and I don't just mean personally, I mean who, who don't like the idea of him buying into taking over Twitter, their biggest fear is that Elon Musk will bring back Donald Trump. Right. And anything anything is justified if it's stopping Donald Trump. So right. telling shareholders, no, you don't get your forty percent ROI uh telling telling journalism students and uh, and you know Americans and people around the world uh you don't get a, a free speech platform you get a sense of, uh, a curated platform um that's definitely worth it if it's going to stop donald trump in the in the minds and hearts of i would say at least half of Americans and the maj- vast majority of academic, Americans, for example, Americans with, uh, with, with undergraduate degrees. Um, and I wonder if they're right. Part of me thinks that they are right.
0: Ah, so now here's the contentious, bit. what makes you think that they're right? What is the upside downside? So I think the,
1: Uh, here's the problem I see two scenarios the scenario hmm. where I think they're right is Musk takes over Twitter brings back Donald Trump um, and and the social media space doesn't really change right so yeah. everyone who's on Twitter stays on Twitter like maybe a million people leave Twitter and go start some niche little club a little bit like when Donald Trump was kicked off he started some little niche club it went nowhere yeah, some anti-Trump. Uh, I mean, thing goes nowhere.
0: It, yeah, he started. Uh, what's his network called? Truth, and apparently it's been sort of a total disaster from the start. It's had lots of technical problems. It has a huge waiting list, and then the waiting list doesn't seem to be moving, and just all sorts of problems. There. And apparently he's really annoyed at Devin Nunes, who was the former Republican committee chairman that he put in charge of it. Uh, uh, apparently, it's yeah, it's, it doesn't seem to be taking off, and it looks like his dreams of. You know, Trump Twitter is 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 dead on arrival, uh, which yeah, and I think was probably the most likely thing to happen because it's very hard to start a social media company actually. Once
1: once there are already other ones in in play, and right? If you exactly. think about it, I mean, Trump had like a hundred million followers. Even if only half his followers joined, and then they all bring on a follower who's not necessarily a Trumpian, but someone who wants to come to that network to like hate on Trump or do something else. You know, you've got a hundred million people. You're off to the races. You're doing fine, but it just turns out Trump supporters, even diehard Trump supporters, hardly followed Trump to the new place. Uh, and if they did, they didn't leave Twitter because because people don't go to the party uh, in order to be in order to see the band. You know, it turns out. I mean, actually, if it's a one-off party, you set up the cool band, you set up the tent pole. People who love it will go, but but Twitter's not like that. It's much more like a boarding house or like a town or a, or a city. No one moves to a city to bump into Meryl Streep. Yeah, you how, know she is the greatest actress in history, and I love her, and so many people love her. But no one moves. To some city, <laughs> the they're going to bump into. It.
0: That's just and, how and our cities work, and it's like a city. It's a huge. Also, community. also, Twitter, Twitter thrives off of the chaos and the conflict, right? Like, like a city. That, that I kind of that I kind of don't like about it, right? Is that an enormous amount of Twitter content is at least in the political sphere of Twitter, and and it's actually worth noting that Twitter has these very isolated spheres from each other, and if you only follow people, you know, who are interested in I don't know, trains or something. Right. And you're pretty uh, 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 strict about that. Twitter will try to suggest you people outside of that budget bubble. But if you really just ignore them, (laughs) you can only hear about trains from your Twitter, which is both good and bad. But anyway, so on political Twitter, a big driver of content is someone with a big Twitter following on the left or right, quote treats a lunatic on the other side says, hey, guys, look at what these lunatics on the other side are saying. They're evil monsters. This is why we need to stop them. And then Mm. everyone piles in and fights with each other in the comments. Uh, If you have an app like Truth, what are you going to say on it? It's just going to be screenshots from Twitter of look at what the left is up to now. (laughs) And then you might as well just be on Twitter.
1: (laughs) Dude, I think Twitter is like a city in the sense that like, Once you've got enough people together, you need more people to take care of the sewerage and to help you defend yourself against the criminals and to, you know, help service you with things to distract you from the fact that you're in a city with like noisy neighbors. You know, very quickly, the presence of all those other people creates problems, which can only be solved by more people, which is what draws in more people, which creates more problems and more solutions. It's a wonderful thing. It's a terrible thing. Charles Dickens, et cetera, et cetera. Best of times, worst of times. Okay. So so that's why it's very hard to displace. So in this scenario where, where Musk takes over and all he ends up really doing is opening up the world back, opening up uh, that part of the world back for Donald Trump, then I think that the political impact is that it secures the 2023 nomination for Trump. And if Trump wins the nomination for the Republican Party, America loses whoever wins the next election. Because then so it's a, a zombie you think, versus an
0: orangutan. Are you, are you so sure about that? I mean, a lot of Republicans who you know are pretty keen on Trump say we really like him except for the tweeting. We think that that's a bit unbecoming of a presidential candidate or a president. And so isn't he more likely to win the primary if he's not on Twitter? Okay, you've challenged my hypothesis. Maybe.
1: Let me let me give you scenario two. In scenario two case, I think that I think that it's a great thing. Uh, this is kind of the best case scenario for me. Scenario two looks like this: Musk buys Twitter, and brings back Trump and rewrites the rules so that the algorithm does nothing
0: uh, normative. If Musk can stop complete idiots being suggested as follows in my timeline, I'm totally on board with him.
1: (laughs) No, 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 no. I'm (laughs) I'm suggesting this. He makes the algorithm completely non-normative, right? So at the moment, as far as I can tell, um the algorithm of twitter is not as it's a little bit like facebook in the sense that there are judgments being made there is like a little bit of the fingers on the scale um in terms of what's going to what's going to bring the best return to the company and a lot of that is like well let's let's do things that are going to aggravate you more because it turns out that humans that get really angered are going to come back more often And the other thing is is like we're going to shadow ban or or downplay things that we consider to be misinformation. You know, some things are going to get the the either the outright ban or the or the sort of uh little underscore vaccine passing thing. This is not going to be like that. Musk is like, here's what we are. We're like a cell phone company. Okay. And the cell phone company has no business telling you, you know, interfering in your conversation with other people. So insofar as the algorithm's working, it's just like number of hits, number of likes, most popular. It's just as transparent and non-normative as it could be, as amoral as it could be. And a lot of the shareholders don't want this to happen. But like the 60% of the shareholders outvote the 40% because the 60% just want that extra 40% of money. Because like if you've got a million dollars worth of Twitter shares, tomorrow you're going to have a, an extra $400,000, an extra 8 million, 7 million rands, whatever it is. Uh, It's hard to say no to that. But a lot of people are sitting with money that they don't really wanna have because they've been bought out. And so there's a huge investment in starting a new social media company. And it's not like Trump because because it's opening seed investment is a couple of billion dollars. And that goes into making sure that all the glitches are taken care of by the smartest smarty pants in Silicon Valley and into having not just marketing campaigns, but like the full Monty. Tours of college campuses where speeches are made together with presidents right. of important Ivy League universities who say, you must leave Twitter and
0: join Dungus Dungus. Uh, and it's, and in- it's it's worth thinking that that, that definitely could happen because I know already some of the sort of more um, wokey type uh, Twitter employees have been publicly complaining to major media outlets that they're really stressed out about the idea that Elon could buy the company and they don't want to work for him and they think he's awful. And and so they would all be very keen to jump off and go and work on some new social media company that was well-funded. And I think that
1: would be the best case scenario. If you And I don't mean for them to have the same kind of humiliating experience that Trump had. I mean for them to do it and for it to work. I mean for a new social media company to emerge that is that promises the following value add they say we are curated so we are going to um put our fingers on the scale we are going to make sure that disinformation about vaccines is shielded we are going to make sure that people who use horrible swear words people who are outright racist to to black people um but not outright racist what you know people are outright racist racist black people are going to be banned people are outright anti-semitic are going to be banned um people who are outright communist are not going to be banned uh you know there is a set of values that you could call woke that you could call um uh, various things i I don't care what you call it there's there's an identifiable set of values that 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 has more or less defined the the curation of twitter as it has been and they reproduce that over there and and a lot of people want that and a lot of people need that and a lot of people go for it like hundreds of millions eventually like in a couple of years a billion plus people are on that platform And then you've got Twitter and you've got this other one. And then I don't even
0: know if a hundred if a billion people are on Twitter, actually. It's one of the smaller of the social media platforms.
1: Right. It's one of the smaller. Okay. So whatever it is. You know, it's like it's like almost as big as original Twitter. Dude, I'd be happy if it gets bigger than original Twitter. Because my because my controversial not so controversial claim, but like I made this claim to 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 to, I sent it to Philip Pettit, who uh, is this um, wonderful professor at the Woodrow Wilson International School. No, it's not that anymore. At Just at Princeton University, who wrote The Economy of Esteem, which we talk about a lot, uh, group agency, which I wrote my thesis about. So I interviewed him in 2020 uh, about the pandemic, because I thought, you know, the pandemic is bringing about this great moment for studying The Economy of Esteem, because some countries are trying to change people's behaviors through government force. And other people, other governments are trying to do it just through suggestion. And that's exactly the kind of difference that the economy of esteem is all about. It's like, does just suggesting, saying this is cool, and that behavior is antisocial, just saying it, just spreading that idea, does that actually change behavior? And, you know, I think South Korea, Japan, maybe it shows it does. Let's not relitigate that. The point is, we got into this conversation after the interview about... um, about the economy of esteem more broadly and he said that he had stopped thinking about it for a time, for a number of years, because he was so depressed by what the internet had done to the economy of esteem.
0: <laughs> oh, glorious. Isn't it? Did he say what it was that broke a camel's back for him on that one? Oh
1: no i don't think he i don't think there was one the thing that yes the thing that broke the thing that broke him was that he couldn't think of a way out because it's like you've got two bad options the one is to let it be free and that doesn't work he says because back in the day in the medieval period the let it be free option was better because the real challenge was always that one person would use force to command everyone else's attention. But no, that once
0: <clears throat> Very hierarchical centralized societies, or at least all of the energy in politics was trying to centralize because society was so decentralized. It was like, you know, all the smart people said, well, look, of course the king should have more power because otherwise the bandit lords are just going to ruin everyone's lives and if that means that he has to tell people what they can and can't say that's a good thing because then we won't have so much conflict
1: I mean put it another way even Jesus said uh, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and he was saying that in the context of Roman tax collection literally being tax farming where the idea was the consul, like some governor says to a bunch of hooligans you guys have to go and collect this
0: amount of gold well, and... they buy a contract. They say, they say uh, <laughs> we, we're taking this much in in tax. We're taking, let's say, 300 uh, uh, denarii in in tax. Um, you buy, you pay us 300 denarii, and then you have permission to go to this region and shake it out of the local population. <laughs> so if you can shake out 700, you can shake out 700. Don't tax too much
1: because then they're all going to die, and then you won't be able to come and do it again next year. That's the only incentive to not overtax the people. <laughs> the tax rate is literally however much I can get out of you. And you're still around next year for me to do it again. Okay. That was, and even under that system, Jesus was like, "Oh, just give to Caesar what is Caesar's because the alternative is, you know, is, 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 is anarchy. So I hear you but i but i think part of his point was that just just in terms of how communication worked the the problem today is different then it was just impossible to have what we have today which is a whole lot of people kind of drowning out the truth so there the worry you know the way he puts it i'm not sure if this is right but the way he put it was and he's written this so i'm i'm not quoting him extemporarily was um You know, there the worries was that one person would distort the truth by repressing all of the repressing everyone who's actually telling the truth um, and putting out one official version that's a lie. And you can see, you can imagine in medieval Europe how this works. You know, the Pope or the King or whoever they staple to the door, to the wall, they get the town crier to say what the official version is. And if one or two other people disagree, off with their heads. But here the worry is that. Everyone has a microphone. Everyone has a platform. So the problem, the major problem that that free speech laws need to deal with is not one one bad actor crushing the truth. It's everyone creating a cacophony that drowns out the truth. And there, the free speech let every voice speak its truth uh, idea that worked in the 19th and 18th century, when the American founding fathers were coming up with this when before that, classical liberals of the Enlightenment are coming up with it. That doesn't work anymore because of this technological shift. So he was like, regulation is not going to work because governments are likely to just regulate with the fingers on the scale to make things better for themselves. As clearly, you know, the Chinese are kind
0: of the best example of that. Um, right. Uh, and freedom is not going to uh, work. Let, so let me give an example squatters. of yeah. what the sort of nightmare version of the other one looks like. Um, so the politics board or the politically incorrect board as it's officially called, of four chan. Uh, what was the great discussion, the great argument that was being had on the on the day that um, that Russia invaded Ukraine? It was, um, guys. We need to work out whether the Jews control the Russians or the Ukrainians, so we know which side to back. <laughs> because the more Jewish side is is the is the bad guy, obviously. One. So there and was someone who saying, said, Oh, you know, um, Azov battalion that shows that the neo-Nazis are on the side of Ukraine, therefore we need to back them. And then the other side was like, No, 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 no. You see, Putin is actually uh, 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 Putin is actually standing up to Jewish global tyranny and all the just like mad anti-Semitic conspiracy.
1: Yeah, dude, right? then some. Then someone said, "No, Putin is a Jew." So we've got yes, to yes, Ukrainians. and They said, a, someone and someone else they said, said like a...
0: is a Jew." So we've so, got to... <laughs> and that's and the esteem market. There's there's no barrier to entry, unfortunately. Right, anyone can log yes. in. Can uh, you don't log in even. You just you just can post. You can post whatever you want. You can even pretend to be several different people, which is what people do all the time for fun to cause chaos. <laughs> it's like the most free that free speech can be because you don't even have, um, you know, an identity. Stable you're identity. completely yeah. anonymous unless you want unless you don't want to be. Yeah, you know, in you're, fact, you're with, identified as you volunteer. Right, and in fact, people on the, uh, the that problem was so bad on the politics board that they actually implemented an ID system that temporarily works for each thread because people would pretend to be a political opponent and then respond to themselves claiming that knocking down the straw man. It was anyway, (laughs) so this is, this is basically the worst case scenario of, of when free speech and the esteem market interact in a really twisted way to produce a discussion that is just completely beyond the pale. That's just so toxic that it doesn't, it's not even vaguely connected to reality. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Accepting its connection to reality is that it, I mean, I think, have a drink, (laughs) Appiah. Pardon me, Anthony Appiah, cheers. Cheers. He makes the point, um, I think, the the most of anyone I know in the 21st century, sort of classic, really classic kind of medieval sort of uh, Christian theological point Um, and, and a point at the heart of Buddhism and Confucianism, which is that mood management is important. You're not just a rational computing machine, right? This idealization of Adam Smith is very good for certain purposes, but it's really bad for other purposes. Um, the, the, here's, here's how things go wrong. For example, um. I remember Appiah telling the story, the example that he gave uh, back in 2009, 2010, or whatever it was in, in a lecture, was that in certain situations, you you really want to take on a, a, quite a hard utilitarian point of view for your moral analysis. Um, and lifeboat ethics is a kind of name for, for that domain. So, you know, it's the Titanic, it's sunk. You're on a lifeboat and you know that this lifeboat can only hold 13 people. The 14th person is coming along and trying to clamber into the boat. Uh, and you just know that there's no help coming in. If this person gets into the boat, the boat's going to sink and you're all going to die. You have a moral duty to stop that person from getting on the boat. Now, you might disagree with that thought. I think it's a pretty sound thought. Uh, Appiah was not trying to sort of say one way or another. He was trying to say, if you think it's a sound idea that you should, you should just do the terrible thing like uh, the character does in that movie of, of sort of letting someone go to save someone else, um, letting one go to save 13, that makes sense in that particular moment. But if you always think like that, if you're always on the cusp of making some consequentialist utilitarian determination of what you should do, then you're very likely to make very bad judgments and you can see this with people who run red traffic lights, right? They're like, nothing is wrong with running a red traffic light if no one else is around. I'm literally harming no one. It's a victimless crime. So I don't care about the traffic light as a rule to stop and wait until it's green and then go. I consider it like a bit of information. Okay, it's red, so probably I should just slow down and check it out and see if someone's coming. But I don't, it's not a rule. It's And I'm going to go through it if I determine that the consequences are going to be best. And I'll admit that in Joburg, after 10 o'clock, I definitely drive like that, by the way. Oh, yeah. Everyone's Um, done that before. Yeah. Um, But if you do that all the time, the worry is that it puts your head in the wrong kind of... You're in the wrong headspace. You're in the wrong mood. And that you're much more likely to eventually cause an accident because... Just because you're being a cheeky brat, right? So I think the, the... the problem with 4chan, and and I remember the, I mean, hearing about 4chan in in the the fall, you know, November 2008 or early 2009, whatever it was, hanging out with a friend who was like, you know, working all day and then you know eating. Uh, Adderall and snorty cocaine and whatever, and smoking joints to, to do eight hour binge sessions on four channel night when it had just started and was the sexiest thing in the world. I thought this guy's amazing, he's in this parallel universe. Well,
0: well that's when it took off. It started in I think 2003, but it, it like started to appear in pop culture in a big way. And um, I think the first thing they did was actually protesting uh, Scientology. Um, the Church oh. of Scientology had gotten a video of Tom Cruise. That was, like, kind of embarrassing to them. It was supposed to be for internal consumption of the church, taken down off of, like, everywhere on YouTube. And random people on 4chan, this is where the anonymous, the whole anonymous hacker thing started. Yes. Uh, Rally together and sort of did these half-serious, half-joking protests where they showed up wearing, like, silly masks and costumes and things outside of Church of Scientology buildings. I think, like, a f- couple thousand people showed up in various protests across the world. Uh, no, not huge so crowds. I, I, like, I think <laughs> that they, they, they eventually got huge crowds. I think that was later. Um,
1: I think that's closer. That's Obama's second term. That's close to the election of Trump. This is Obama term. Obama's just been elected. But V fourth vendetta has come out, and so the, the anonymous mask is around, and this is part of the thing. Okay, the, the, the point of that story is that I could see it a little bit in him, and, and this is what he liked about it, was that you plug into it. You plug into this esteem market where, where it's just outrageous, where it's all about the lols. It's all about humiliating other people. Um, and and then you unplug and you come back to reality and you can be really sweet because you've sort of vented catharsis, um, as Aristotle might have said. You you, you you know, you've pricked the wound and the pus has come out and you're, you're Toxic emotions have been released. And so you're back to a very stable state uh, of being. That's a nice idea. And, of course, sometimes you play video games. I definitely play sport. Part of the reason that I try and play sport at least a couple of times a week if I can is that I do think that uh, it's nice to release some of my manly rage <laughs> on, like, a volleyball or a t- like. Awkwardly gangly, like I'm not very good at it, but whatever. It's like I need to sweat a bit. But the thing is about, yes, the thing about that esteem market, which is really rewarding the worst kind of behavior, is that you might get into it and for a while you get into this mood and then you unplug. Eventually, you just become the guy who like cruises through, you become like a ta- a Burke taxi driver. You're like deliberately driving up the road the wrong way through the red traffic yes. lights, like plowing through people's gardens, destroying their so- dogs killing old
0: ladies they, like, you know and we still don't the, care people on unfortunately actually aware of this and and they sometimes have made memes about this very fact one of the things that people used to do to kind of provoke outrage was pretend to be neo nazis right they'd say ah oh, you know uh, hitler did nothing wrong uh, the holocaust is a lie something like that just totally and it's, outrageous stuff. it's just it's just an act they just pretend,
1: right they're and, just and it was it was, law annoy, law it was just, it was just to annoy
0: it was just it was just to annoy and upset people because it was kind of funny but the problem was, actual neo-Nazis looked at this and said, "Man, these people are our brothers. We should all go there." <laughs> so before you knew it, it was actually a community of people who weren't just trying to make people upset, but very genuinely believed this stuff and like were deep down the conspiratorial rabbit holes and were completely obsessed with you know the Jewish plan to take over the white race or whatever the hell they're, they're into these days. And it's interesting to see the sort of website. It's always had like a dark seedy underbelly, but it used to be a lot more sort of like delinquent, antisocial teenage behavior. And over the years, the site has become increasingly dominated. By, and yeah, more, it's, it's actually much more serious, right? Adults. People who take themselves very seriously, which is so what it never is,
1: used to be. So, so this is the point I was trying to build to with Appia. Appia says this all starts with, with children. And and the easiest example is is a little child with a mud cake. The amazing thing about human beings, and it's like one of the most beautiful facts to keep trying to explain, and I I, I was recalling it because of our episode last week on the problem of childhood. One of the amazing things about childhood is that you don't have – you can teach a little child how to make a mud cake, and you never have to teach it not to eat the mud cake. They know how to play. They know how to go like, ooh, that smells delicious. Ooh, hot, hot, hot. Blow their hands and put it on a little tray and cut it up with a knife and fork and feed it to the little doll, but never put it in their own mouths because they know as much as they're playing, as hard as they can play act that this is a real cake. They know that it's mud and mud is gross to eat. It takes a real grown-up mashuganah to play act so hard so often (laughs) that they end up sort of choking themselves on an actual mud cake. But the problem is that it's not just something one or two grownups do. It's something that every single grownup on the planet will do. If you put them in the right bit of theater sports for long enough, we are all prone to insanity. And so, if if there's a if there's an esteem market that's set up the wrong way it'll bring out that worst side of us and make us get very real uh not play acting neo Nazis getting you know like proper horrible and disgusting so is my thought that twitter should become like that twitter should become the new reddit but just starting out with a much bigger base platform and then the new twitter becomes the new twitter no my thought is this I think that there is a delicate balance, which much like the thing we were talking about last week with schools, managing uh, just some difficult conversations with with children and stuff. There's a delicate balance to be struck that you're not going to legislate very well. And the best way to get there is through a bit of competition. And I think cell phone companies are exactly the right model to think of. So like a cell phone company can be subpoenaed and can provide evidence of conversations in which terrorist plots have been conducted. Like I do think that the law needs to step in there. And if someone on Twitter or Facebook is organizing to come and mob Nicholas's house, uh, because he is the greatest, you know, host of the daily friend show and it is, it is Liberty's shiniest torch. And it and 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 the forces of of South African fascism want to snuff it out.
0: I oh, see, one day I hope to have that kind of relevance. But anyway, <laughs>
1: <laughs> if they're plotting that on Twitter or Facebook or whatever, it, Reddit, like that should there should be a system that raises red flags, and the government should be able to use that information to 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 prevent the crime from taking place of 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 burning down Nicholas's. Uh, podcasting studio. That is my firm conviction. I do believe in the law. At the other end, you know, we had a podcast that was shut down. I'm still, I still haven't listened to what was said, but I think nothing nefarious was said, and that's really gross. Yeah. So I think that the way to deal with it is if there are. This is how it's worked with 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 publishing houses. When when you're when Europe moved from a world in which the imprimatura of the Pope or the local bishopric or whatever was necessary in order to be publicly displayed as a, as a text um, uh, that is, that's not illegal to own or sell. When it moved from that into a space where uh, things were fairly free, as they have been in the book world for a while, there was this in-between period of kind of publisher monopolies. And, and retail monopolies, things really work best when there is like two or three or three or four sellers that are all more or less the same. And they kind of, you know, it's like 40% market share, 30% market share, 20% market share, whatever it is. And so they all have rules to stop the worst, and they're all very tolerant. And if one of them deviates too far one way or the other way, they get punished very hard by losing market share. So they kind of keep each other in check. I think so, that if there were two Twitters, you know, if there's another Twitter and another Facebook, and uh, you've got the Yandex and you know, the, the problem right now is that wherever there is competition, it's across boundaries and across language groups. So Yandex is huge. Russian. the The Russian part Facebook site is still like the eighth biggest site in the world. Uh, Chinese Twitter, Facebook, uh, you know, conversation platforms. Huge. You
0: know, what's called Weibo is their version of Twitter.
1: But there's no real competition there. You need in English to have Twitter and some other thing. And for most people that are plugged into one to be plugged into the other, for crossovering to be as kind of common as for me on cell C phoning you on MTN or the other way around, so that mm. those companies fade into the background. That's where they should be. We really shouldn't care about these companies, and I care about this story because I think it could be a great step towards not giving a hoot about Twitter, not because it goes away, not because Elon Musk makes it. I mean, he does have hubris. He says Twitter will be the... This is where I disagree with him. He says, I can make Twitter the platform for free speech in the, in the world or whatever it is. For free... I believe it's in its potential to be the platform for free speech around the globe. Nah, dude. No. No.
0: (laughs) That's not how it works. In my opinion. Twitter Twitter was pretty relaxed, actually, in the beginning about some of this stuff. And then, you know, uh, and and this will happen to Musk too, if he does actually own it. Some lunatic will tweet out, I'm going to go shoot up a school tomorrow. And then you'll go and shoot up a school. And people will say, why didn't Twitter act to take this down? Why didn't Twitter alert the authorities? Or why didn't Twitter do X, Y, or Z? And you'll probably in the end have to at least put in some moderation. The moment you put in a little bit of moderation, it's very easy for then people to start getting in there and saying, okay, well, no, we want to allow this, not this, and this, not this. And the whole edifice kind of builds from there. I think Twitter is mainly staffed by sort of woke um people whose politics I think is pretty toxic and I think it's also staffed by a lot of people who just generally don't like like the idea of free speech that much to begin with but uh they originally weren't that keen on enforcing that view of the world they they were more interested in doing their jobs and I think over time as Twitter has built up its uh what they call it? a safety safety Council they have like a whole internal structure for deciding what to censor or what to take down that kind of stuff and um they sort of arrived, they evolved into this position. They didn't just sort of arrive at it one day. They didn't say, okay, we've created Twitter, and now it's time to crush the right. Uh, <laughs> I think that they've sort of stepped more into to that over time. And, and by the way, there are a lot of people on the right who would be very sad if the free speech stuff uh, if, if, if Twitter was less censorious of people because um, there's an awful lot of people who make a lot of money by complaining that they've been censored. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, exactly. Which is one of those funny, which is, weird things about the internet age.
1: <laughs> so, so, I mean, let me put this another way: Did books, did did the novel, do best when most people were discovered, were having heated discussions about which publishing house is too censorious and which one is too. Licentious, I beg your pardon. No, of course, there are little titillating, you know, there's D.H. Lawrence's Lady Chatelier's Lovers, which was, you know, too hot to handle and then it was allowed. And I remember ex girlfriend reading that to me in the bath. And it, <laughs> I was, I I, 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 I that is such I, a
0: Gabriel I, anecdote, my God. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I thought this book is not nearly as interesting as just like what every teenager is kind of figuring out about life at a certain late teenager stage, one I think you you know, it's a good book. It's but it's not it's it's not that it's not that crazy. And Lolita got published, which is kind of germane to the conversation we were having last week. And some people were like, You shouldn't be able to allow to put this in a bookstore. So I'm not saying that there are ever going to be moments where there aren't conversations about censorship and allowance and I, I think those conversations should always be alive in a way, but they should be mm. very, very fringe. They should be making up much less of a proportion of the conversations that we have. I imagine a world in which there are two Twitters. Twenty years after that, I think that the the a priori inevitable forces towards um becoming more and more sensorial those are connected to having a monopoly if you've got two there's right. also a pressure to become more uh licentious because the, the otherwise the other group is going to eat your market share of people that want more licentiousness and as it turns out precisely because of the network effects this is what i'm trying to take advantage of precisely because of the network effect it's always going to be difficult to get to a position where you've got a twitter for the left and a twitter for the right I don't think that's ever actually going to happen because everyone yeah. wants to fight with everyone else. So they're always going to be on both. <laughs> but in the moments when an, a chief executive or a board makes some big decision to deviate from the norm, that's when you're For going example, to see we're a going shift to take in market share. the president
0: of the United States. Right.
1: Yes. If there had been two Twitters and someone said, we're going to take out the president of the United States, then there would have been a huge shift away and that would have scared the board and it would have returned to equilibrium much quicker i think that decision would have been cancelled in 24 hours for example which i happen to think would have been better you know it would have been better for him to lose with that rather than without it as it were anyway as it turns out. not what i thought at the time um the, the, this is the, the 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 picture is really like It, it really is kind of my my sort of belated lemor d'escalier come back to pet it uh, which is that which is that the wrong way it just turns out you've got this choice and I had been talking myself into the position for years and years of thinking that these guys have to be like publishing companies they have to take much more responsibility like editors like newspaper editors they really have to take much more responsibility for what they're putting out there than they do newspaper editors should not be getting away with any of the stuff that they do. But instead, and I now think that the, that the ideal would for them to be, would be for them to be like, like cell phone companies. And the contrast is this, in the case of newspaper editors, when newspapers are doing best, you are talking about the newspaper as a group. Whereas when publishing houses, cell phone companies, etc., are doing the best, you're talking about the particular conversations and the individuals having those conversations. So I never want to think of a day where there's like Twitter is like the Washington Post, like Twitter broke the story. Twitter was brave enough to do this or Twitter was too courage, too cowardly to do that. That should never be the historical footnote to some important moment. It should always be, you know, this person said this, that person said that on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, on Chelsea, on who cares? Who cares who published F. Scott Fitzgerald, Great Gatsby? Who cares who published uh, the first folio of Shakespeare? Who cares uh, about any of that stuff? We
0: really Look, care I about... Think, I think I think. Um, uh, one thing I just want to add here is I have a view that it actually, even though we talk about it matters a huge amount, you know, um, one of the big things that was censored by Twitter in the lead-up to the 20, uh, 2020 election, was the story doing the rounds about Hunter Biden's laptop. Uh, Twitter said that it was a kind of unproven election meddling, Russian false information, whatever. And they they blocked it from being linked to, right? The truth is, (laughs) even though Twitter worked to censor it, and I think a bunch of other social media companies did as well, the story did actually, you know, kind of get out there to everyone who was listening. No, I Um, I disagree. I, I, I think the hint of, no. I I, I I saw, I mean, I didn't read about it in any way except Twitter. <laughs> they, everyone was talking about that's all they were talking about. <laughs> they were either talking about like how it was good that it was censored or how it was bad that it was censored or, or whatever. Um I, I really don't okay, so, think that social media platforms have the power to this. Is my, my point is that the internet is actually already there are no true monopolies. Especially on information, there's a thousand holes in the bucket, and everyone can get their uh I mean, you know I see more more comments uh, <laughs> online that come directly from Alex Jones, even though he's been banned off of you know even the app store <laughs> And yet I still see stuff straight from his show uh, uh, in comment sections around the world. So I think that actually there is no such thing as a true monopoly. That doesn't mean I disagree with you by the way. I do think two Twitters would be a very good thing. Uh, i just don't think it's that they're they're as important as a lot of people make them out to be
1: right so so i don't use twitter so I'm probably exposing a little bit of my foolishness um and thank you for checking i that. stopped
0: using it in 2020 and only went back onto it because um the war. it was the best yeah. place to see stuff because of the war yeah so
1: i think the hunter biden thing sort of connects to this ancillary point i'm trying to make which is I think there really was a huge. If you play, if you wind back, so it turns out that Hunter Biden's laptop was real, and that it's got a lot of damning evidence, etc., etc. Yeah, really, really embarrassing
0: for the social media companies for sure. First, Mm -hmm. the newspapers.
1: So the New York Post carried the story, and the New York Times cut them, and it is a little bit like.
0: I think also the Wall Street Journal didn't touch it either. I may be wrong Wall about Street
1: that. Journal didn't touch it. New York Times said this is actively fake news. New Yorker said it's actively fake news. The reason I'm contrasting those two is because it reminds me of the, the battle between the Washington Examiner and the Washington Post in the 1960s uh, is a little bit like the battle between the New York Post and the New York Times in the 2020s in the sense that the New York this is this is newspaper arcana, but if you if you give me five minutes before we hop onto the war. After World War II, the Washington Examiner was an interesting newspaper. It sort of emerges into a world where some fiscal conservatives were irritated by Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who became president after the Great Depression in the 1930s and promised the government would well, solve everyone's problems. Right. During during the Great Depression, by some accounts, exacerbates the Great Depression. I, I'm i still like Milton Friedman. I think the, the Federal Reserve did the worst. Um, but FDR comes in and he says, you know, big government, big New Deal, uh, it's going to be great. And he's so popular that it's hard to go against him. But people still do. And it seems like he might be displaced. But then World War II comes and he becomes sort of baby Jesus. Uh, You can't really criticize him out loud. And so people who, Americans who want government to be smaller become uh, a little bit like closeted homosexuals of victorian england you know they all know each other most of them are fabulously stylish they have great parties together but in public they <laughs> <laughs> they, they they would never admit to you really would be outing someone if you said secretly you actually think fdr uh, has taken us in the wrong direction Uh, you'd be you'd be bringing ash on you'd be pouring ash on the head in a a totally unfair and unjustified way because because reasonable people you know some people are born fiscally conservative and others are born (laughs) i don't know maybe i'm taking it too far nicholas is laughing at me (laughs) um my apologies i i here's the point the washington post is competing with the Washington Examiner where the Washington Examiner has committed itself to being a local Washington newspaper. The Washington Post is trying to compete with these newspapers that are syndicating themselves around the country, but it's really being outperformed by the Chicago Tribune uh, and the New York Times and uh, McClatchy sort of uh, conglomerates that that you know buy the best journalists in the country's most famous columns and, and sort of pull them together in... Uh, what look like local newspapers, but that are really just a sort of local face on a national uh, uh, background conglomerate. And there's a few others. Okay, so the Washington Examiner is really trying to be local as lacquer and it's pretty good at it because it's in Washington DC and that is the center of power. And so it's good at getting the smut. It's good at getting the most edgy cartoons. It's good at getting like mavericks that have been, just too honest to really survive in politics but that like had a good you know spent their salad years really getting to know everyone so they still have some deep friends in the cocktail circuit uh that not just uh, give them good smut but really good analysis as well and they tend to argue for a smaller government with more ferocity than kind of anyone else will so it's a little redoubt okay and The 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 wash then it flips the other way it goes a little bit lefty at times but I don't want to say that's the main thing about it but you know it'll 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 publish these sort of maverick fiscal conservatives in a way that is difficult to get away with in this particular sort of FDR golden era things shift quite a lot after the war but what doesn't change is the sense that is this very Simple version, which is where the analogy is tightest, that you've got highbrow Washington and lowbrow Washington. And that's the difference in the New York Times and the New York Post. The New York Times is read around the world. It's got, you know, Princeton's Nobel Prize winning economist Paul Krugman as their main economics writer. It's got David Brooks, the sort of best selling, uh, kind of soft liberal, wonderful thinker, as their main uh kind of social affairs uh, social analysis con- columnist thomas friedman uh who sort of renounced the republican party it's really it's it's really until john McWhorter kind of given up on the right given up so, on the center it's very left it's very international it's very highbrow and no one on a New York subway that I saw even ten years ago was caught reading the New York Times. People who actually <laughs> take the subway read the post.
0: Right. And and just to give you a sense of what's uh What's what the post is like by comparison. Um, the top story is currently highest bidder, and it's a picture of Elon Musk when he smoked the, the marijuana on the Joe Rogan experience uh, yes. with a little picture of the Twitter icon next to him, and it says Elon Musk can't resist weed joke as he plots Twitter takeover. And then <laughs> on, the, on the side panel of trending stories, the top one is woman duct-taped aboard American Airlines flight faces record eight Eighty-two thousand dollar fine. Fine from the Federal Aviation Authority.
1: Did the New York Post? It knows. It knows what the
0: people need. You know, right? Uh, uh, what, with the marijuana. What, one of the other. One of the other ones is quote. Now I'm pissed. Secret Service agents outraged by White House spin over first dog bites. <laughs> <laughs> and this is such. I mean, that is. Oh my God! What perfect
1: timing because that is the you know that's the great line in american journalism who came up with it was someone around uh, uh in the 30s i think uh man bites dog right this is this is when the this is when you really carry a story in the highbrow news but the new york post is like no 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 dog bites man that's good enough for us here we go <laughs> and this is often new york subway has just had this terrible attack and uh uh, you know, when I checked the, the New York Times front page, it's all the Ukraine war and sort of weepy, Terry and it is very sad, I mean I, I immediately had my heart skip a beat and I thought about my friends in New York I don't want to make light of it but I can, you know, it's somehow not so surprising to me that the New York Post already a day later is kind of, is also making room for high jokes and, you know, it's not it's not pressing pause and like now we have to just do um shirt ripping like uh, tears for our city uh it's it's got a very hardened new york attitude of like we keep rolling we keep going we keep keep going okay so they did so the new york post did the hunter biden laptop story before the 2020 election and the times said this is fake news this is russian dif- disinformation and did not relent from that position for another year and uh after the Times followed the Washington Post followed um you know really the American mainstream and I think that if those newspapers had reported that differently, the election might have been different, and as it turns out with this kind of factual, like I don't want so you might you say, and you might very well be right that the social media was already not monopolized in the sense that those distribution networks of information. That were prone to be favorable to a story humiliating Joe Biden at a crucial political juncture were able to spread that story nevertheless, both by sharing the New York Post story and by sharing the rejections and denunciations of that story without basis coming from other mainstream outlets to say, look, it's rigged. These guys hate us, they reject us. And that also generates interest and information. That might all be true. For everyone that's not on Twitter, they were let down by the newspapers who instead of telling their readers, here's the allegation, here's why we think it might not be true, but we can't be certain either way and you should make your own judgment. Instead said, no, 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 here's the allegation it must be fake news coming from the Russians who are trying to destroy our
0: democracy. So there's a a really interesting point, I think, here, which is that um, social media is actually in a lot of ways still downstream of the traditional newspapers. Uh, the traditional newspapers may not always be read as much as they used to. Uh, they may not make as much money as they used to, but they still, by a large degree, kind of set the tone for sort of what are the big issues that are talked about. Um, or sometimes, if they're not talking about something that people think they should be talking about, people talk about the fact that they're not talking about that thing, if that makes sense. <laughs> That makes any sense. right right but it's so,
1: those people those people are the ones that i'm trying to avoid talking about because the ones that i think really like in any given election for example there's only 5% 10% of the population that might change their mind and i think that newspapers do have the best power to influence them so the hardcore trumpkins are going to be talking about the fact that the newspapers are not talking about it for example it's the person who is an engineer or an accountant or a street sweeper or a nurse, hairdresser, who really tries to avoid the news because they kind of don't trust anything. They say they don't trust anything. And it turns out the
0: the voters who are most likely to switch their vote between elections are often those who engage the least with the news. Uh, They're usually called low-information voters. Um, And there's a chunk of them in a lot of U.S. states who are absolutely crucial towards winning a national election. Um, and-, and those are the guys that can be
1: swayed because low information is not the same as no information If it, but it is sometimes almost exactly the same in the sense that they're the ones who would have been impressed by the story if only because they would have seen it when getting into the subway on the headlines at the candy store stand that's you know selling newspapers and candy and cigarettes they would have seen that headline oh my god there's this thing or they don't see the headline. And failing to see it doesn't, you know, in uh, makes the difference between them making the decision one way or another. Or them seeing it in, like, what they consider to be a bit of a tabloid, but then not seeing it picked up by the other more serious papers like the Wall Street Journal, which is a great newspaper. And so is the New York Times. Um, you know, seeing it not be picked up there, they're like, well, I guess it can't really be true then. I, I, the, the, probably the Post is just making it up at the last moment. I imagine that a lot of those in between voters would have said at the time, we think the Post is just making it up. And by the way, you know, it turns out that maybe making your decision on the basis of whether Hunter Biden had rubbish emails showing him to be corrupt and promising Ukrainian uh, gangsters contact with his father in exchange for money, maybe that shouldn't change the way that you vote. And yeah, so
0: I think there was also stuff about him personally using drugs and stuff in there as well. Uh which yeah, was pretty that, hectic. That almost certainly shouldn't change the way you vote. Uh, uh,
1: but but it is it's just the most recent example of of an October surprise. Every election has one. And and the media's role in influencing that. And I think what Musk is doing, what Musk is trying to do is put himself in the position that next time there's an October surprise, he's kind of in the driver's seat of saying whether this thing gets censored out or not. And that does mean he's kind of bidding to be the next kingmaker in the world's most powerful country, which is why I think the story, for people who agree, for people who disagree with what he's doing, I think people should be thinking about it and talking about it because it's weird. It's just come out. I don't know everything I think about it. Two scenarios. Two scenarios. One seems good to me, one seems bad, although Nicholas kind of knocked down the bad one. So maybe if the bad one is good and the good one is good, he should just
0: do it. Can I I just say that, um, you know, so I don't really like Elon that much, and I can't really tell you why. I have nothing, you know, I'm not one of these people who just hates people for being rich. I don't think that he's like some kind of mad threat to free speech. I like the fact that he's sending rockets to Mars and I really am keen on his Martian colonization stuff. I think that stuff is awesome. Uh, And I think that he is doing the best thing that a billionaire can do basically by spending money on that stuff. That's exactly why we have billionaires. That's what billionaires are for. Right, right. But I don't know. I just kind of don't like his vibe. (laughs) That's not a very intellectual take. (laughs) um so you know based off of uh, entirely on that analysis i'm not sure if he will do great things that i would consider wise with twitter but i will tell you something there's going to be a lot of people who i don't think very highly of who are going to be very upset if he does take over twitter and for at least a month it's going to be very funny watching people write hysterical opinion pieces about how Elon taking over Twitter is literally the worst thing that's ever happened in all of human history. And I guarantee you, if he does take over Twitter, there will be people three years from now who will be blaming literally everything that's gone wrong in America on, on Elon Musk taking takeover. over
1: Twitter. <laughs> yeah, dude, and that, we are, we are nowhere near the end. If, if, if the goal is for Twitter to be something that that people don't even realize they're using, like, I don't even realize that I'm using Vodacom on my cell phone. The only time I noticed, like, when my phone got stolen, and I had to go get a new SIM card. I was like, oh, I guess I'm on Vodacom because I can't go to the MTN store, right? For Twitter to get to that stage, which I think that's the, I think that's what we need to aim for, it's not going to happen in three years. It's not going to happen in five years. It's going to take a generation or two. But, you know, if we ever have grandchildren i would love i think that the world would be in a pretty good place if all i knew was that in like 50 years it's like verizon versus t-mobile like there are adverts on tv but really no one cares it's like less important than whether you buy a mac or a pc like a like who cares you bought a Dell or an hp are they even different companies you you gotta. I don't even know what the other computer. What is my computer? My my computer says HP, so I guess it's an HP. Like who <laughs> cares, right? That's it. that's not going to happen tomorrow. Um, I just I I think that it'll happen quicker if if Elon manages to if Elon Musk. I don't want to call him Elon. If Elon Musk pulls this off,
0: yeah. Look, the more Twitters there are, I think the better. I definitely agree with you on that point um, because uh, I think that the free market in a lot of ways is the best way to solve the free market and some nudging of the SD market are the best ways to solve a lot of the problems that we have at the moment rather than, you know, the heavy hand of the state. And if Elon can pull off a um, big change uh, to, you know, how the social media environment works, if he can kind of break up that feeling that, social media is dominated by a whole bunch of people who all act and think the same, right? Because that's definitely the perception on the right now is that the social media is all run by kind of uh, left-wing uh, sort of East West coast woke people. And if Elon Musk owns one of the social media companies, he is 100% going to change that. And uh, I think that 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 would be very good. Um, it would get it would break up this feeling that you know, oh, all, all social media is against us. That a lot of people on the right have, uh, and I think that would also lead them into having a less sort of conspiratorial oh. crouch. Yes, yes, <laughs> please. <laughs> so, so like good conspira- luck to you.
1: Can I just dwell for a moment on conspiratorial crouch? Is that? I mean, so I, it's like the mood that. Like, if a human monkey is, like, on a camping trip or, you know, and you're in the woods and you drop your pants and you're making a poo and you're crouching, like, that is the most paranoid that a human – like, you are so paranoid. So that's the conspiratorial crouch that, like, so many conservatives are, unfortunately, always stuck in. They're, they're like, neuro, ne- their neurons are firing in the same pattern as a person pooping in the woods, let <laughs> it be over. <laughs> let us yes, let us end that and free these people from
0: their from their cons- worries that everyone's out to get them. Definitely. Um, so good luck to you. Now we could move on to the next topic, but we've already gone an hour and fifteen minutes, so I really do think we should call it there. Uh, do you have anything to say? In uh, I'll, I'll time it in five minutes. <laughs> Okay, um, I
1: think it's, it's been like, I, 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 I suppose my reflections on the war in Ukraine are difficult to compress into that period. Let me try. The, the key humanitarian incidents in Bucha, Mariupol, uh what is it Dagestan there's a couple of places
0: where uh, um yeah there's another one i think in the east somewhere or in the north somewhere i can't remember what it's yeah. called it's got a name with a b i think yeah it, that's not I, Bucca.
1: not yeah has Bu- one but i think that my own view is is that i haven't seen enough evidence to make up my mind one way or another uh i think that's controversial In the English media, as far as I can tell, everyone's made up their mind uh, that what happened is that Russians killed Ukrainians in extrajudicial ways and very terrible ways, so on and so forth. The chemical attacks in Mariupol is very different. Even a lot of you, very pro-Ukrainian people, yeah. The
0: Ukrainian government itself has said, "Ah, we don't know about that." Hey,
1: yeah. So I, I, I really am. You know, I've been on South African radio and TV enough times when like everyone in our Twitter sphere and professional media had made up their minds that some incident was racist. And I'd said, let's get some more evidence first. And those were not nearly as serious in the sense that, well, you know, some of them have been murder trials, uh, but some of them have not been. None of them have been mass murder. Uh so this is more serious. And I and I understand that as it gets more and more serious, it's harder and harder for people to um insist on patience um i do think it's a good idea to insist on patience i I also think that there's going to be an important distinction to make which is that in a proper country uh the law should be more reliable in other words if the law finds someone guilty it's more likely to be the case that they're guilty innocent likewise in a situation of war it might be the case that there's insufficient evidence to, to find war, uh, violations of, of basic human rights, uh, but that nevertheless a lot of reasonable people say there have been such violations because in the conditions of war it's harder to gather evidence. At the same time, it seems like um, investigators have arrived kind of earlier than ever uh, who might be able to get corroboration for some of the claims that are being made. Um i was initially for example totally persuaded that the satellite footage of the bodies laid out in butcher were corroborating evidence uh because that satellite satellite evidence purported to show that those bodies had been laying out there for like at least a week or whatever it was during russian occupation but subsequent uh evidence that i've seen about like who owns the satellite company what it would take to fake the dates for the for the footage to be real, but just a little date, which is like just a little kind of superimposed picture uh, to be jiggered. Uh, and yeah, that made me think, you know what? I'm actually not convinced. It doesn't cross the reasonable doubt threshold. I still have some reasonable doubts. Um, that's one thing. The second thing is that in terms of who's winning and who's losing, I think our conversation last time about the war, you, you said 70-30 in favor of Ukraine. I said 50-50. My theory was that Russia was spread out like five fingers across the country and that if it could gather up into a fist, it would be uh, winning, but that if any one of those fingers was snapped, it wouldn't be able to gather up into a fist and so it would lose. I feel vindicated in that judgment. I think the withdrawal of the Russian troops from the north, uh, you know, from on the on the clock from like 11 o'clock till 2 o'clock, uh, put it in a good position uh, to redeploy those troops and go for a much more conventional style warfare. In fact, this sort of Napoleonic trick, which I said that they were on the wrong side of, they now seem to be on the right side of, it seems to me like Ukraine is unable to redeploy vast numbers of its troops. I think they've been able to maybe move 15,000, but Russia's been able to move 60,000 uh and so this is exactly the trick of napoleon that i was saying russia was on the wrong side of now it's on the right side of and that trick is to uh you know if russia's got less troops and relatively similar kind of tech in a lot of ways uh, what you really want to do is split your opponent and have your forces concentrated against a part of your opponent a, a section of your opponent's forces so if you've got 10 and they've got 10 you want to divide them into five and five and then have eight of yours go against five of theirs, and then two of yours tie the other five down. So eight against five, you've got a huge numerical advantage in that domain. That does seem to be the trick that the Russians have pulled off. Um, I think that their official version is that they withdrew as a gesture of goodwill. I don't think that. That is their official version. That strikes me as crazy. Uh, The American, the Ukrainian official version is that they were driven back. That's also crazy um, as far as I can tell. Uh, so I think that it was 50-50 and that if they had stuck with their you know, five-finger strategy, it would have been very easy for them to lose, very easy for them to win, but very easy for them to lose. At the moment, I think it's shifted. From the day that they withdrew, I thought it's 80-20 in their favor. In fact, when I say 80-20, I'm trying to sort of build in a lot of a lot of epistemic humility because uh you know my my knowledge of military strategy is limited to reading a handful of books and they have kind of been tangentially about military strategy there may have been history books about wars uh i've never taken a class uh explicitly about it so so maybe that's appropriate but it's but it's also like inappropriate in a way because as a layman i feel kind of in this strange place where i think the russians are bound to win uh, and and it's been giving me strange dreams like nightmares and and i think that and i think that i'll finish on the so first thing what okay so Second thing is, sort of, how's the military strategy going? First thing is, how's the humanitarian crisis going? And I do sound like a Russian apologist. I know that. You know, I'm saying, on the humanitarian crisis, I'm not condemning anyone because I don't know. Well, I just don't. And that is where I'm sitting. And I know that's not going to be popular. And on the second thing, where's the military strategy going? I think Russia's winning. Uh, I'm sure some people will think that's not right. Definitely have had meetings with people who, you know, if if you say you think the Russians are winning, they interpret that normatively rather than as a mere description about how things are going um on the third category i'll just say about sort of western western response two things one is that i think america really is setting up a very terrible thing to do with a bond war in 10 years time and Let's talk about that another day. Yeah, um, uh,
0: that needs a full episode.
1: Yeah, I had a nice listen to a podcast from Larry Summers. Uh, but but the short thing to say is, you know, both Donald Trump and Joe Biden have described the Russians as uh, as as performing genocide in Ukraine. And I think that the West Western rhetoric has hit rock bottom. I think it's outrageous. I think it's disgraceful. Uh, it's completely uh, following the script set up by Putin, who said that there was a genocide happening in Ukraine <laughs> against Russians. Now they're saying now Biden and Trump agree that there's a genocide happening against Ukrainians. Um, we, we had an episode earlier this year about genocide and the dilution of terms of of condemnation of esteem units of esteem supplies of shame that are hugely important to keeping our society together murder is murder genocide is genocide rape is rape these words as allegations or conclusions or condemnations have very real weight which is being profoundly corrupted and you know we've debated like i think it's I think it's a terrible mistake to say what's happened in China is a genocide against the Uyghurs. Um,
0: yes, I've uh, but we have argued about that. I have disagreed on that one. Yeah, um, and so I have that's... said that
1: it's a terrible mistake to say that what is happening. If, you know, people who've said that there's a white there's a genocide against farmers in South Africa are making a terrible mistake. Uh, on the flip side, I really appreciate that you recommended my piece on Rwanda. There was a genocide in Rwanda. And uh, none of the American leadership were willing to call that out, nor was the UN.
0: No, uh, one of the worst things the UN has ever been involved in. Okay, so yeah. that's, that's, a, that's 10 minutes. So That was 10 minutes. That was 10 minutes. No, it was
1: 154.
0: Okay. So I, uh, I am convinced that there has been some humanitarian stuff. I think that um, Russia has helped the Syrian government do nasty things in Syria. I think that the Russians have done stuff in Chechnya that is not oh, too far beyond. some. I completely stuff. agree. I, yeah, let me just. I agree about that. <laughs> right. So, so uh, I think that you know some of this evidence. Obviously, I agree that um, the satellite stuff. I think if it's found that it's that it's that uh, it's definitely you know the date is correct, then that's really difficult to argue with. I think it's more likely that the date is correct. Um, And there's other stuff too. Like, for example, you know, there was uh, from a different source, I saw that one of the trenches, which where a lot of the bodies are, was dug at least a couple of days uh, earlier. There's also other stuff. Like there were foreign journalists there quite quickly. And there was also, I remember journalists talking about the smell of rotting flesh in a very real way. And that... It's kind of difficult. To I mean, you know, there's a million explanations for it. But anyway, I so so I'm convinced that some real, real nasty stuff has gone on there. Um, I do also agree that the genocide word is not one to be thrown around lightly, and I would not have used it. I also think that Biden just kind of said it because he just says things, and he didn't really think about it. And then he realized that it would be humili- humiliating to try and go back on it because he'd already walked back like five statements over the last month. Um and so that's why he doubled down on it. He did walk it uh, back though. Sort of, kind of. It, it wasn't he did. As... He said, he said,
1: I didn't say that as the president. I said that in my personal capacity. That is walking it <laughs> Which is, a, is... Okay, that is the... eat your heart Yeah,
0: that is the most that is the most pathetic walk back I've ever heard. Anyway. Um, as for the military thing I think you are underestimating the scale of damage that has been inflicted on some of the Russian, uh, what are they called? Uh, there's the, 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 all the cool kids talk about it, BTGs, battle tactical groups or something, which is like the way that the Russian army is organized. Um, not a term I knew before this war, so just take that into account as I talk about them. But something like half of them seem to have been deployed towards Kiev in the north of the country. And just based on the sheer amount of stuff that was left behind stuff that was blown up stuff that was abandoned stuff that was just trashed personal effects left by soldiers wrecked camps abandoned equipment i think they got pretty badly mauled and the russians realized that any kind of maximalist goal where they would you know be able to really just pin the ukrainians against the wall and do whatever they wanted is completely off the table now and that they've realizing that they've gone okay um we're gonna cut our losses on that one we're gonna redeploy to the east and see you know if we can achieve uh, something like some of the goals that you talked about as being more realistic for russia like uh you know taking taking the separatist areas well
1: more desirable i always said it'd be terrible <laughs> i always said the worst mistake they can make is to try and take Kiev, and the second worst mistake they can make is to try and take a
0: right um i think both of those are now off the table uh as far as the, the, their goals and things, unless you know, suddenly they destroyed the whole Ukrainian army in a big encirclement or something. By that being said, uh, I think that 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 the 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 sort of the the morale and quality stuff has continued to be in Ukraine's favor. I think that um, they're now receiving; they're going to be start receiving some heavy equipment from Western countries. I know that they look like they're getting heavy artillery and tanks from from the the, the other sort of Slavic countries, which um
1: which the Russians is, have said they will bomb as soon as they cross the border
0: right which, well, which, i think some of them may have already gone across uh, i saw i saw footage of one of the slovak heavy artillery pieces looked like it was in ukraine um uh, but not on the front line but like like mucking about in the woods in in West the ukraine.
1: reason the reason i bring this up is because like from the you know I, I think the first time we had a conversation about the war, about the military side of the war, after it started, I said my biggest question is how successful are the Russians being at destroying? It was the first time they bombed, uh, missile attacked uh, near Lviv. Yeah, there's on a training center. Border.
0: Yeah, right, right by the border of Poland. And
1: they said they managed to take out like you know soldiers where foreigners are, and they've t- managed to take on an ammunition depot. So. When the West was supplying the Ukrainians with air-in-laws, javelins, stingers, and so on, these are hand-held units which can easily be put inside of ordinary vehicles. And I've seen footage of, you know, you have a few of these units inside the back of a car and traffic has not been stopped because the boats, the Russians and the Ukrainians don't want to be seen to be stopping ordinary civilians from escaping or supplies from coming back in and so on and so forth. So smuggling that stuff has been really easy. Do you think it's easy for, for tanks in substantial numbers or artillery units? You know, if you think about those columns that have been famously displayed for weeks on end of of Russian uh, uh, units, uh, uh, both originally by Kiev and now, you know, sort of coming in from Russia into the east of Ukraine. If you really want to get substantial numbers of of, of heavy units in. It's hard to do it without putting in a column like that, uh, and if columns, you know, so maybe you can get one or two, you know, specialized uh, 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 multiple rocket or, or missile launcher things through. Uh, even that would be tricky. But if you have a whole column, there, it, it it strikes me that there's no chance of getting that through uh, Russia's domination of the air, and that if you if you're not doing a whole column, you're just doing one or two units, and that's not really making a difference.
0: So. Two things on that. One, I think that Ukraine's um, air defense systems in the west of the country remain fairly, fairly robust. And secondly, uh, it's not just roads, it's just a rail. And we know that the rail system is working because all the Ukrainians have made a point of taking all the foreign presidents who've come to visit Kiev. By train. On the rail system. Yeah. Um they took Boris in on, on the train. But they
1: so hard to, I mean, that's the
0: easiest thing to disrupt if Russia wants to disrupt. Right. So this is evidence. Um, this is part of the evidence I use to suggest that their mu- missile system, that, that the Ukraine's air defense system, in the west of the country is still relatively robust, is that they haven't been able to destroy the rail networks properly that lead into Ukraine. Why would and that's a they, really so my good my question thing is why, to would they have, why would they have wanted to destroy the rail system? Well, so that you can't drive tanks in on a, <laughs> on a train. No, but there's been no tanks coming in. There have been already,
1: some. You're saying like two from Czech Republic in the last
0: week. The the major... I think it was, I think it was 100. Uh, I may be wrong, but I think it was 100. T72s. Okay.
1: Well, I think this is interesting because it, because it does uh, uh, highlight a point of contention. And I'm not sure that I'm right, and I'm not sure that you're right. But, but I think we've identified a good point of contention, which I have not seen discussed on Russian, English. Like, no one wants to talk about how effective has Russia been at closing the bottleneck of new supplies of heavy equipment uh, and and how successful is Ukraine at, at, at keeping them open. Okay, so, so, well, so it is so, the one if if it Can turns I- out to be the case that 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 Russia there's a whole there's like 400 kilometers of train track that Russia just can't find any point to to blow up or blow up sufficiently badly that it can't be restored in time for sort of mass hundreds of tanks to be taken over then i think my appraisal of 8020 is 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 probably off uh, that is probably you know uh, Overestimating Russian power. Yeah,
0: for sure. So I think just to finish this off, that there's a really just that the next super decisive phase is about to come up. It is the battle for the East. The Russians are going to make a big attack and attempt to encircle um, the big Ukrainian forces on that side there. They've redeployed all their stuff to that side. So they're going to make a proper go of it. Uh, they're not going to be spread out like they were in the earlier parts of the campaign, which which definitely weakened it's, them. This
1: What's coming now is going to be worse
0: than anything we've seen in terms yeah, of. it's going to be a huge battle, and the Ukrainians have already been saying this. They say it's going to be like World War II, and I think they're probably actually right.
1: <laughs> World War One. Uh, this is
0: the Somme. Here comes the Somme, and who right. whoever wins the Somme, yeah, right. Uh, and that that's going to be decisive. If Ukraine can push them back or hold them back, then I think that the momentum will swing in such a way as Ukraine might even be able to make significant counterattacks. Whereas if the Ukrainian army is sufficiently mauled, and maybe some of them are are trapped and destroyed, then it's going to be very difficult for them to control the east of the country, and Russia will pretty much have free range over it, because a lot of that part of the country is is flat step. So it's, you know, this is actually where a lot of the tank battles of the Second World War kind of took place. Uh, It's really good for sort of big tank maneuver warfare stuff and the Russians in the east do have the advantage of still having you know vastly high numbers of aircraft and stuff which is most effective when the ground is flat um, and the one thing the Ukrainians haven't gotten nearly enough of for their purposes and this is why they keep talking about it is anti-air systems and aircraft and this is why they keep banging on about it because they know that in the step, and they've, they've said it also quite bl- bluntly they cannot relieve the siege of Mariupol until they have better cover from the air Um, And as long as Russia maintains that, it's going to have a lot of advantages in the east, even if it's sort of general quality and morale, I think, is not that great. You know, when you're being bombed from the sky, it doesn't matter how motivated you are. You really really can't do that much, Uh, as as a lot of armies have shown over time, particularly when it's flat fields. um, There isn't really anywhere to hide your vehicles. So I think we are about to see a very decisive, very cataclysmic um, battle and uh, yeah I I guess that after that's happened we will reassess where we're at
1: so I'm saying 80-20 now for the Russians maybe I'm taking it too far what you've just said is making me feel like I have but I'm going so let me me bring it back to 70-30 so I was at 50-50 before you were at 70-30 in favor of the Ukrainians before I'm now at 70-30 in favor of the Russians are you still at 70-30 in favor of the Ukrainians
0: yeah, I'm still in the same place. Um, like I said, if there's a big push that traps their arm in the east, I think Ukraine's in very big trouble. But I'm not sure if the Russians really are going to be able to do that. Uh, they've they've had a rough war. I mean, Ukraine's also had a rough war, but for them, in their mind, if they don't win, you know, it's the end of the universe for them. Um, at least that seems to be what the Ukrainian side believes. And, yeah. Uh, as a result, uh, uh, I think in the end, they're going to probably stick it out. Uh, it is interesting to me, in a way, this still comes down to like
1: this question about morale, where my view is is this sort of psychological hypothesis that humans in general uh can be much better at at getting along with the job if they're unhappy than people in capitalist liberal democracies tend to believe because as orwell says in in my recommendation of a week or, or whatever it was ago uh, capitalism promises happiness happiness today socialism promises happy to, happiness tomorrow but fascism promises unhappiness and uh, and that can be really popular. Uh, and, and Orwell was saying that sort of with his tongue in his cheek, especially because it was, it was a sort of deference to Hitler's greatest line, which in a discussion with, uh, I must admit, a Russian friend, I realized really was sort of the Ukrainian line, right? Um, and is the line that Nicholas has been pushing. Uh, Hitler's greatest line was, it's better to end in suffering than to suffer without end. Right. When you're fighting an existential war, if you give up, you'll be humiliated for the rest of your life. You'll suffer without end. You know, you'll have your family around you, but everyone will know that you're a bit of a loser who gave in to the Russian machine. And it's better to just die, to end suffering as a hero, uh, than to than to resign and and suffer endlessly the the humiliation of, of, of resignation. Um and I do think that in that sense uh orwell was was his project explicitly was to think about ordinary Nazis like human beings and not like evil monsters uh to think of 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 the people that were flying over his head as as good fathers and good husbands, many of them good. Uh, brothers and sons to their mothers uh, good good honest citizens in so many ways, you know to say like if I could kill them, if I could kill Hitler, I would, but that doesn't mean that they're all evil and so on and so forth. He really was quite seriously trying to humanize the Nazis um and and so i i'm I'm flagging that because in bringing in this thought, I'm not trying to dehumanize anyone i'm I'm trying to say that I think that. The, the ultimate humanization of Nazism that he could find was that if you let go of the ideology, ultimately you've got a lot of people fighting for survival. And Michael Sarre does the same thing in 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 uh, the his his book about the Civil War in America, where he humanizes the Confederate side. So I think you know if you if you think of the Russians as being like the Nazis or the Confederates, or you think of the Ukrainians as being like the Nazis or the Confederates there is this question that Nicholas and I keep clashing up on, which is, you know, if you just think a bit about them, like human beings, morale becomes the question. And the person that's just fighting for their survival. Um, is in a deeply human way going to have a morale upper hand. So that can be, that can be rendered nu- nugatory by um, sufficient air supremacy or,
0: firepower over one but but also it is really important i agree if they start losing in the east and they have a big setback i don't think ukraine has had a massive setback since the early days of the war and so in a sense their morale could be a little bit brittle in that they think we're destined i mean what you know as good as opinion polls are in a war the opinion polls so far show that like 85 percent of ukrainians at least will tell a pollster that they think they're going to win the war and That's if there's some thing. sort of huge setback, there's going to be, <laughs> there's going to be people looking at each other going, no, well, you see, it's actually this person's fault or it's this person's fault. We were betrayed by this one, or and then the moment you kind of turn inwards like that and you start blame casting around, uh, you can very quickly run into, what are we even fighting for? Because our own side is rubbish, blah 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 blah. So. That's I think the danger of them losing a very big battle is that they might sort of go, Oh no, you know, what went wrong, we were winning, and now we're all disaster. I think this has been the problem for the Russians. They were they were pretty confident that they were just gonna walk over this country. Uh and it turns out to be much harder. And I think that's one of the reasons that their morale is not that hard. That's
1: where we disagree, but I'm much less interested in that because that's where I just think you're talking the same nonsense as everyone else. You don't know what the (laughs) Russians are thinking. You have no idea. You can't speak Russian. You don't know Vladimir Putin's middle name. You don't know what he had for breakfast. You have no idea what he was thinking.
0: Yeah, but Um, neither do you,
1: dude. And I think the evidence suggests... Exactly! uh,
0: But I'm not the one pretending. You just claimed that you knew what they were thinking. I'm not claiming that knew what they were thinking. No, but I'm claiming the guess. And I think that my guess is not based on nothing. It's based on what they did. But anyway, we're at one minute, one hour forty. So let's close it there, because I think that we both said what we want to say. Um... (laughs) Wait, hold on. I want to.
1: I want to come back to my point, which is that I th- that I think I think our disagreement. Look, this disagreement about what were the Russians thinking, I think, really is very silly, because uh, neither of us should pretend to know what the Russians were thinking when they invaded. Uh, hopefully, history will reveal uh, when 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 sort of letters and proper documents are are exposed, and that unfortunately might only happen in twenty years um i certainly try to avoid pretending to know um i think our interesting disagreement comes back to the same point i think the fact that the russians have sometimes been caught on 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 ukrainian videotape or sorry not videotape uh, uh, audio saying hi mom yeah, this is really terrible. I wish I wasn't here. I don't take that stuff particularly seriously because I don't trust it. But there is a lot of evidence for 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 real gloominess, as you were saying, sort of uh, uh, R- Russian positions that were kind of messy and just sort of... Uh, I think that I really don't see much joy. I see very little joy. There's an absence of evidence, which is evidence of something about morale. But to my mind, my psychological reading is that until the World Cup, the soccer World Cup, it, it really I really had never seen a Russian smile in public at a stranger, excepting for one time that I was in the subway where there was a clown at sort of uh, 1 o'clock in the morning who was doing tricks for vodka shots. And... When the World Cup came, there were literally government social workers going around teaching train conductors and the like how to smile to strangers. I do think that there are deep cultural differences across places. And I do think that if I'm right, it's because I have the benefit on the morale question of knowing that Russian people continue to be as effective or ineffective as they otherwise were in a very grumpy mood. And if you're right, it's because I have overestimated my insider knowledge. In other words, I have thought that, you know, these people really are quite different and and they sort of enjoy suffering not enjoy suffering, but they can endure suffering and continue to be quite effective. Right, they have more a for it than the, they have a higher tolerance for it than, for example, I think Americans or 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 English people would. Um, because you know, I've just overestimated that. I've I've, I've kind of fallen for a, a stereotype, a couple of a couple of jokes of, of I've become the kid eating the mud cake, and and I. And I do, I mean, I kind of, I don't know what to hope for. Well, I don't know if I remember, hope I'm right or I'm wrong. Remember, because... the people,
0: the people dying on the Western side are, uh, as Putin and Macron have called them, the brotherly nation of the Russians. You know, you may be right that Russians have a high tolerance for suffering, but it may also be the case that Ukrainians did too.
1: Oh, so, well, I think on that front, we kind of agree, which is why I was bringing up the 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 orwell quote there it's better to end in suffering than to suffer without end everyone seems to agree that ukrainians have a very high tolerance for suffering but they seem to say so and i think this is a very reasonable thing to say uh for reasons that have nothing to do with ukrainianness and everything to do with existential threat right so if any if any people is being threatened with total annihilation and i completely disagree that, that with that that's what they're being threatened with but if they if people genuinely perceive that that's what they're being threatened with then their tolerance for suffering is going to be almost immeasurable um, that hardly needs any cultural explanation at all it's just circumstantial the reason i'm reaching out for the cultural explanation and i think this is we're kind of on common ground here is we think that russia's in a very different position because it's an optional war for russia where it's an existential war for Ukraine. Now, actually, I think it's an optional war for both, but it's certainly perceived that way by most people on both sides. And where there's an optional war, America has displayed, for example, in its withdrawal from Afghanistan, how profoundly namby-pamby and suffering averse uh, and sort of counterproductively suffering averse a leadership can be of a people uh, and, and, and with some reason in the sense that like uh, the people can be a little bit like the princess and the pea hypersensitive to, to issues in the kind of productive sense that by trying to avoid pain they end up inflicting more pain on themselves than they would if they just had some tolerance for, for, for suffering. I think that it's in that regard that I that I look for because it's an optional war for Russia, I think, that I look for for this explanation. And 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 it might very well be wrong in two ways. It might be the case that most Russians don't think of this as an optional war. I don't know the polling. Uh it might be that well, by this stage, most Russians I think believe that, 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 yeah, that if they I hadn't think invaded that... first Ukraine right. I do think that that know. has
0: been the focus of Russian um, inf- uh, messaging to its own people is to say, you know, it's it's we win this or it's the end of Russia. Uh, yeah. I, I think that that has definitely been a message that's been going out to Russian people. I haven't and they've seen definitely that very much.
1: I don't. And I and I watch a lot of Russian news. I, I, I can't say that I've seen that much, but I but I can believe you that it is something that's been put out there because it would be. To my mind, the most logical way to try and, and shore up morale, um, if it turned out that that the that the gloominess, the gloomy face, um, is reflective of an incapacitated will, um, I don't know. I
0: I I but end in a question mark. <laughs> and the ending of all is a question mark um, you know, I just want to pat us both in the back here for uh, managing to get to two hours again
1: <laughs>
0: um, almost, almost. Okay, okay let me try close, uh, I just want to add one thing, and you're not allowed to say anything about it, the world has changed because of this war, Japan is taking in some refugees and if you know anything about Japan, this is like this yeah. is like hell freezing kind it's of huge. stuff <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> okay. Um, recommendations, do you have any? I would say, no, you go first. Uh, so I guess I can recommend the uh, editors, the editorial by the National Review on the Shanghai lockdown. Um, just saying, look, you know, China kind of in a lot of ways started some of the stupid stuff that's come down the pike in policy terms of COVID. Uh with very militant lockdowns, and it got a lot of praise from a sort of technocratic-minded uh, kind of person, as this is what this is the way to do things. Um, and I think that they have shown in Shanghai that they really, you know, don't actually have a great strategy for dealing with COVID. Uh, I think this is different to the way that Japan and South Korea have done it. I think they have managed to. Uh, you know, prevent COVID from getting themselves quite early and and still, you know, they've they've been tough, but not like not like (laughs) not welding people into apartments. Tough, they were not tough in Japan and South Korea, they would they were
1: suggestive,
0: okay? They were suggestive, but you know, they like they did travel bans, for example, which that's not tough, right? But the what the West. Oh, it's too tough for the West to do. Um, right. It's smart. It's too smart. It's too smart. <laughs> right. I'm getting in the way of your recommendation. I'm I'm, uh, I'm <laughs> you. Anyway, so okay. they just I'm say, sorry. they just say, can we stop uh, 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 saying that China's got such a great record of, 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 of dealing with COVID and also like the Chinese government is, shall we say, not the best. Um, so I'll put that in the link in the show notes. But uh, yeah, uh, National Review, the editors, um, the title is the Shanghai lockdown. Okay, I'd like to check that out because
1: i got to say, I feel like the lesson of the Shanghai lockdown might be that I hate totalitarianism, but sometimes it works. Um, <laughs> I don't approve of it. I mean, I think it'd be worth it to go there. No, sure, way, but, but but has it like actually I'll, worked
0: in Shanghai? And I, 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 I would be very out. skeptical that it is, that it has.
1: I'll be happy to check it out. Um, my suggestion is i i i I will let me make it this one um the hoover institute's good fellows podcast or youtube thing if you listen to us you should definitely listen to them because that they're they're uh i think similar in values in a lot of ways different obviously in some ways but uh super super accomplished uh nodals uh, whereas we are like chill dudes who who are trying to <laughs> trying to figure it out as we as we go, um, uh, each each has its advantages. Their advantage is that they do interviews with other people all of the time, which I think really brings out the best in them. And sometimes it's really boring, but the one that they have with Larry Summers this week is amazing. He is so he is a slimy centrist. Okay, by which I mean that he's like so smart and so condensed, but so, I think so burnt by when he was removed as president of Harvard for making comments about genetic differences between men and women uh, 15 years ago, that he has learned this second layer of language in which you're able to say... Exactly, the next door neighbor to the thing that you mean, and and you you sort of leave the cookie crumbs, and it's very
0: Hansel and Gretel, and by the end of it, uh, yeah, you figure out what they're actually saying. <laughs> it's like a puzzle; like very, you need to build the puzzle. But it's like very
1: direct. He's like he's like punching you with breadcrumbs to follow. <laughs> up the up the garden path uh to to the cookie monster i don't know uh if if that makes any sense to you then what he says will probably also make some sense to you and if it doesn't then never mind
0: (laughs) awesome stuff all right anyway uh with seven minutes to spare uh we thank you very much for listening you see how disenjoyed we are we've cut ourselves (laughs) (laughs) oh god Uh (laughs) And all I can ask is that you keep the flag of liberty flying.